Good morning, everyone. Uh, so it's been a while since I've been up here. So as you can see, I have decided to make a significant effort. Those of you who've seen me in the last week will know that my hair is about seven inches shorter than it was yesterday. You're welcome. Uh, I've, I've dressed in a suit, and I've even prepared a PowerPoint. Now, I told Katie that I prepared a PowerPoint, and she said, Michael, where are you preaching, the 1990s? Uh, I, but I said, well, Katie, if I don't have a PowerPoint, how am I going to show a picture of Wiley Coyote during the sermon? <laughs> uh, Tracy told me that he wanted me to preach more often. I wasn't aware that what he had in mind was to preach from the flood narrative on Thanksgiving weekend. I'm trying not to take that personally, but it's going to depend how the next 20, 25 minutes go. But we're here now, so we're going to dive into this narrative and see what we can find to be thankful for. And the interesting thing is when you do really pay attention, not just to this story as an isolated passage, but to where it fits in the biblical arc of redemption, then you realize there actually is a great deal to be thankful for in this story. It's a story of grace. Uh, it's an example of God's unending commitment to keeping His promises, not because we deserve it or because He owes it to us, but because that's simply who He is. But before we get to all that, I want to play a game. <laughs> so, uh, here's the game. I have chosen a key word for the sermon this morning, and this key word is going to be crucial to the entire sermon, and obviously, I want you to guess who it is. And in order to help you do that, I have uh, I've prepared a series of examples of fictional characters that are drawn from a variety of sources. And you are going to tell me what character trait all these people share in common. And that character trait is going to be our keyword for this morning's sermon. Everybody understand? All right. No guessing until the end. Uh, could I get number one? You thought I was kidding, didn't you? Uh, <laughs> number one, Wiley Coyote, best known for his never-ending and yet doomed attempt to eat the Roadrunner. Uh, can I get number two? Samwise Gamgee, uh, known for literally accompanying his friend Frodo Baggins to the ends of the earth. And number three, Inigo Montoya, <laughs> best known for pursuing the man who killed his father for 20 years and memorizing the speech he wanted to make when he finally met the man. I did play with the idea, I'm not going to make the speech. On balance, it felt like the better choice. Uh, but what character trait do they all share? Oh, I heard, I heard the word. It's not perseverance, it's close to it, but I heard it over here. Persistence, absolutely. It's persistence, and persistence is our key word for today's sermon. To persist is defined as to continue firmly or obstinately in an opinion or a course of action in spite of difficulty, opposition, or failure. And persistence can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. It can be a beautiful thing born out of an enduring commitment to another person, like with Sam and Frodo. Or it can be dangerous self-destructive, and downright insane, like Wile E. Coyote. We're going to see a little bit of both in today's passage. Humanity's self-destructive commitment to sin and God's enduring commitment to His creation. 
we're going to see humanity persist with their sin in spite of the cataclysmic judgment that they witnessed in the flood. We're going to see God persist with His creation in spite of the overwhelming opposition offered by sin. And finally, we're going to see God persist with His covenant, regardless of humanity abandoning all pretense of keeping up their end of the deal. But firstly, we're going to talk about how humanity has persisted with their sin. Now, a little bit of a, uh, a warning here. We, I want to find the grace in this story. I want to find God's promise-keeping. I want to find those beautiful things. But in order to be able to see that there is grace in this story, first we have to see how completely sin had pervaded the entirety of creation and affected everyone and everything in it, and just how serious of a thing sin actually is in order to be able to see the grace of God in response. So if you've ever watched the Wile E. Coyote cartoon, his commitment to catching the roadrunner, uh, his persistence, borders on insanity. He could be burned to a crisp, blown sky high, fall off a cliff, get hit with an anvil, and then in the very next scene, he'll be laying the groundwork for his next attempt to catch the roadrunner. No matter the disastrous consequences he's faced in the past, and will face again if he doesn't change course, he simply will not stop trying to eat the roadrunner. In the aftermath of the flood, there are very few people left on earth, and those who are left still had their heads spinning from the scale of God's terrifying judgment on sin. Noah, as the head of this group of survivors, has previously been described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So, if there are only a handful of people left, all of whom have witnessed the destructiveness of sin, the evil that people perpetrate on one another, and all of whom have witnessed God's judgment on that evil, and given the fact that they are led by a man who was blameless in his generation, the sin problem should be pretty much dealt with, right? I mean, Noah's blameless, sin has been judged, evil eradicated, everyone knows the score now, right? Well, in chapter 8, verse 21, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. If sin and evil had been eradicated by the flood, and the remaining people had either learned their lesson or were blameless to begin with, then why is this a necessary promise to make? He doesn't say, never again will I need to do this. He says, never again will I respond to this situation in this way. In other words, God knows that this situation will arise again, but He's committing to responding in a different way next time. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 6, it clearly tells us God, God is, uh, is describing what's going to happen when one human being kills another human being and why that's a terrible thing. Why, why have this if sin is dealt with? Blood will continue to be shed, and human beings will continue to directly assault their Lord in the process in whose image they were made. A few verses later, Noah is going to get drunk. 
Uh, all through this passage, there's sign after sign given to the reader that the flood did not deal with the sin problem. Sin is still an issue, and human beings, like an entire species made up of wily coyotes, are going to continue blindly and self-destructively on their sinful course. Even with only nine people left on earth, even led by a man described as blameless and righteous, sin is still an issue. And this begs the question, if Noah is a sinner just like anyone else, why is he described as righteous? And more importantly, why was he spared? Well, if Noah was not spared because he was perfect, then the continued existence of he and his family must itself be an act of grace if they too have been tainted by the corrupting influence of sin. But why spare them? Well, first, they were spared because of God's commitment to keeping His promises. God had promised Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that her descendant would crush the serpent's head. If God wipes the slate clean, including Noah and his family, and starts all over again, it wouldn't be Eve's descendant stepping on the serpent's head. But God is not giving up on His creation. He's a God of grace. That's why Noah is spared at all, not because Noah was without sin. But why Noah specifically? And if Noah was a sinner, why is he described as blameless? Well, Pastor Andrew said it last week, and the text says it clearly. Noah walked with God. He was not perfect or sinless. He was a broken and flawed human being like anyone, but he walked with God. Like his descendant, Abraham, he trusted God and had it counted to him as righteousness. Now, I know, okay, Noah was spared because of God's grace and commitment to keeping His promises. That's all well and good, but nobody else in that generation saw such grace. God's judgment in the flood feels extreme, feels harsh, feels like this, this is too much. This can't be a good God. Okay, but funnily enough, you'll also hear people say, look at all the evil all over the world. Look at how it runs rampant, and lives everywhere are destroyed without justice while God does nothing. This can't be a good God. Well, which is it? Is God bad because we see Him bring judgment against evil when it runs riot on the earth? Or is God bad because we don't see Him bring judgment against evil when it runs riot on the earth? The truth is, we've put God into a lose-lose situation where we will deem Him to have fallen short whether he shows judgment or mercy, acts or does not act. Ultimately then, what, what are we saying? We're saying that we want to be the judge. We want him to judge the things that we want him to judge in the ways that we want them to be judged. We want him to show mercy to the things that we want him to show mercy to in the ways that we want him to show mercy. And usually the line we draw is that we and our loved ones and the people we can relate to deserve mercy, and the rest we're not too bothered about. And if God's judgment doesn't line up with ours, then we place ourselves in the judgment seat and try to put God in the stand. Which, by the way, is the heart of the very sin problem that we've been discussing. Sin is reaching for what belongs to God, rejecting His Lordship, and naming ourselves as his successors. And the fact is that sin is a universal human problem. This narrative has shown us that. And it's a serious problem 
in the eyes of the holy judge over all creation. This story shows us that even those who walk with God are corrupted by sin, and nobody can be spared judgment aside from His grace alone. And I wonder sometimes if after the flood, Noah was tempted to to think of himself, to look at himself as blameless, and to consider himself as having been chosen to survive because of his righteousness. Well, we certainly are at times, are we not? Now that we are walking with God, now that we know that we're going to be spared judgment and that we are going to go to be with Him in His kingdom, are we not sometimes tempted to look at the culture around us and become pharisaical, thinking that we alone are blameless in a corrupt culture? Look at this text and remind yourself that Noah was spared the flood because of God's grace and promise-keeping, and we are spared judgment by the same grace and promise-keeping. God didn't send the flood to eradicate evil from the world and start over again with a new blameless group of people. We know that because He clearly anticipates the continuing of sin all through this text. Instead, the flood serves to demonstrate the severity of sin and its consequences and to show us what sin would lead to aside from grace. The result of sin aside from grace is the destruction of humanity and creation with it. Instead, God, in that grace, persists with His creation. And He's promising that when evil spreads throughout the human race, again, when it overtakes the thoughts of their hearts all the time, again, that He will respond differently. And that next time, it will be in a way that offers salvation to all of humanity instead of destruction. And it will be in a way that redeems and renews creation instead of threatening its continued existence, and that decisively, once and for all, deals with the problem of sin and eradicates evil. So that leads us to our next point, which is God's decision to persist with His creation. One of the most striking moments for me in the Lord of the Rings story, and forgive me, I don't know the names of the places and the creatures and the things in the story beyond Frodo and Sam, but you know the giant staircase right before they get into Mordor? Uh, that part where, where they're, climbing, they're climbing the giant staircase. Frodo is accompanied at this point by, by Sam, his uh, faithful, loyal, and committed companion, and by Gollum, who by now has hatched a terrible plan that if successful, will end in Frodo's death. Uh, Gollum is working hard to erode Frodo's trust in Sam and isolate him. Meanwhile, Sam is trying to help Frodo see that he can't trust Gollum. So Frodo has a choice between someone who's been committed to him from the very beginning and repeatedly shown themselves trustworthy, and someone who has appeared on the scene mid-journey with ambiguous intentions and a penchant for disloyalty. Adam and Eve faced a similar choice in Genesis 3. When the snake came along and told them that they couldn't trust God, but that he would happily steer them in the right direction. Well, Adam and Eve, like Frodo, chose wrong. Frodo sends Sam away, tells him to go home. Adam and Eve reach for the fruit, telling God in the process that his services are no longer required and that they are in charge now. Well, if you fast forward the story, Frodo finds himself in the deepest and darkest of places in the clutches of an evil giant hungry spider. I don't know its name. 
uh, I know that it's intent on the destruction of Frodo. If Sam gave Frodo what he wanted and truly turned his back on him, then this would be the end of Frodo's story. We'll fast forward the story of humanity from the garden to the flood narrative, the start of it in Genesis 6, and you see humanity has found itself in the deepest and darkest of places where sin and evil have, have pervaded the entire creation and the hearts and thoughts and minds of every human being. We are in the clutches of sin and Satan who are intent on our utter destruction. And if God gave us what we wanted and truly turned his back on us and just wiped the slate clean, then our story ends there. In Frodo's case, Sam does not turn his back. He persists admirably with his commitment to Frodo and arrives in time to save Frodo from all manner of impending disasters. For us too, what we need to see in this narrative is that in the midst of the overwhelming sin and in the midst of the judgment on that sin, God chooses to persist. Despite our rejection of Him, despite evil pervading the entire creation, despite us deciding to follow the lead of the enemy who only wants our destruction, God persists. So yes, this is a story about the universality of sin, of how it corrupts and destroys creation, how at its roots it's a decision to reject the authority of God and to name ourselves as our own deity, how it's a slap in the face of the Holy Creator, it's an attempt to launch a coup so that you can have the authority that belongs only to Him. But as much as this story serves to highlight the severity of sin and to highlight God's judgment, what we also see highlighted is that no matter how completely sin overtakes the entirety of God's creation, He does not and will not give up on that creation. Yes, the punishment is severe, but so was the crime. And as if, we, if, as we know, there's no part of creation that hadn't been corrupted, then the fact that He spares the human race through Noah, that He spares uh, each and every species of animal, shows that there is nothing that will stop God from persisting with His self-destructive creation, and there's nothing that will stop Him persisting with His plan of redemption. In other words, there is only one way that this biblical story will end, with redemption and renewal. Right as today's passage opens up, God makes this clear. Never again will I curse the ground, neither will I ever strike down every living creature. In other words, after God decided to persist with His creation, He is now promising to persist with that choice and bring it to its logical end, no matter how bad it gets. And interestingly, it goes beyond humanity, doesn't it? He talks about it being a promise made to all flesh. God's promise is to persist with His commitment to all of His creation and with His plans for renewal. This story speaks deep truths to us regarding the nature and character of God, of His faithfulness, enduring and persisting through any and all circumstances, of His grace, which spares those who do not deserve to be spared. It speaks of God's promise-keeping that even in the most extreme circumstance, He will not walk back or abandon His promise. Ultimately, this story foreshadows for us where our story is going to end. Evil will overtake the entire human race, and there will be no one who does good. 
But God will continue to act in faithfulness, even when we are unfaithful. God will continue to offer life to those who deserve only death. And God's promises will continue to be kept. The God of faithfulness will persist with His creation. So where are we now in the story? Human sin persists despite the judgment of the flood, and God commits to persisting with His creation despite ongoing sin. But some of you might be noticing a problem. God in His holiness cannot endure sin. The flood has demonstrated that pretty decisively. So how can God persist with His creation? Well, His creation persists with sin. How can these things possibly be reconciled? Well, they will be reconciled through God's decision to persist with His covenant. In verses 13 through 17 of chapter 9, God's covenant to prevent any future flood is spelled out. And there are two things to notice. Uh, Firstly, contrary to the kind of subheading in the text, this isn't a covenant between God and Noah so much as, as verse 17 puts it, it's a covenant between God and all flesh that is on the earth. The second thing to notice is that God describes this as an everlasting covenant. Why do those two details matter so much? It matters because the covenant He makes here spells out that His plans apply not just to humanity but all creation, and not just until the earth should pass away, but forever and ever. God's plans are for His whole creation, and they are everlasting. The sign He placed in the sky where all of creation can witness it that speaks of God's everlasting plans for His creation is the rainbow. Covenant is one of those words that's never used anywhere else except in church. But it's, it's, a, it's a promise between two parties that both parties intend to keep no matter what happens. And you often see conditions being inserted into covenants for fear of the other person breaking them. Both sides are making promises, and both sides are agreeing to be held accountable should they break those promises. But God's covenant here is different in a pretty fundamental way. There's nothing being asked from creation in return. God is not requesting that they commit to making sure things never get this bad again. On the contrary, He is promising that when things do get this bad again, He will never again flood the earth. And in the process, He is revealing by making an everlasting covenant that His plans for creation are everlasting plans and His promises are everlasting promises. His covenant arises out of His character. That's how you know it's going to be kept. So when you see the rainbow, we often look at it and say, oh, you know, God's never going to destroy the earth in a flood again. But really, it's speaking of God's character that He has been revealing throughout this story. His persistence, His faithfulness, His promises always being kept. Grace and an everlasting commitment to creation. But again, we return to the question, what can God possibly do to make it possible for Him to persist with His plans for creation while all of humanity persists with their sin? And in the process, to offer redemption and renewal that lasts forever to all creation. Well, there's no analogy to do justice to what God did in order to reconcile the irreconcilable. Unfortunately, I was unable to shoehorn Inigo Montoya into this section of the sermon. There is no historical or fictional figure 
no work of literature or movie scene that can adequately stand next to the amazing work of God. In Jesus Christ, God accomplishes all of these things. In Jesus' death on the cross, He takes on Himself all of the sin and evil that humanity have been guilty of throughout the centuries, and in exchange, He gives them His righteousness. In this, God makes it possible for Him to persist with His creation, because creation is now covered with the righteousness of Christ. While humanity even still persists with its sin, which is now on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God reconciles the irreconcilable. And as Jesus rises again and is given the name that is above every other name and seated at the right hand of the Father, God moves to bring all of creation under the Lordship of Christ so that as His kingdom comes, all of the destruction that sin and evil have wreaked on creation throughout history will be undone and all of creation will be redeemed eternally beyond the reach of death destruction, sin, and Satan. In the New Testament passage we read earlier, Revelation shows us this beautiful vision of the future in bold and bright color. I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here, we see things return to how they were meant to be in the beginning. Here, we see why God didn't altogether give up on His creation in the days of Noah. Here, we see why God persisted with His creation and with His covenant, and we see what His plan has been from the beginning the plan that He firmly refused to give up on despite all obstacles. Here we see the redemption and renewal of all creation. So to finish then, I return to the very first question I asked when we started. What is there on this Thanksgiving weekend that we can find to be thankful for in the flood narrative? Grace. Grace that God has over and again offered life to those who deserved only death us included. Hope, a sure and certain hope that when Jesus comes back, everything will be made new and we will be with Him forever as we were in the garden in the beginning. Persistence, the persistence of the one true God who made the entire universe and whose plans for His creation will never be abandoned from everlasting to everlasting. And in the face of this persistence, there is a response called for from us who know Christ and have received His grace. Now, this is not a response that we are bound to as part of a covenant in order to receive God's blessings. No, this is a response to having already had those blessings freely given to us in Christ. So, what is that response? Persist. Persist in following Christ day by day as you wait for renewal and redemption. Persist in trusting in His grace for each day. Persist in hoping for the second coming of Christ and for the kingdom to come in fullness. Persist in encouraging one another within the community of believers along the way. 
persist in calling those who don't know Christ to find that same grace and hope that you yourself have received and persist in giving thanks to the God who refused to ever turn His back on His creation and refused to ever turn His back on you. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for the grace that we can find in the deepest and darkest of places. Thank You that the plan from the beginning, as soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, was for us to get back to that place at the end of all things where You would be with us and be our God. I pray that You would help us in the meantime as we wait for Christ to come again to persist in in grace, to persist in hope, to persist in love. Uh, and to bear your image to the world around us in the middle of all the darkness that we see. In Jesus' name, amen.